Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Rachel Maidment, Executive Director of the Council. For this podcast, I was delighted to speak with John Wickstrom, Executive Director and Founder of Magic Memories, and Jason Todd, Head of Business Development for Asia. Magic Memories started as a fast photo service for tourists visiting the Queenstown Gondola more than 20 years ago, and is now a global business operating at more than 200 attractions worldwide, including many of the big names, SeaWorld, Movie World, Legoland, etc. I didn't ask to speak with Magic Memories because they have a long history in China, although I would note that Jason has extensive Asia and China-specific experience, but for the opposite reason, in that they have recently entered the market and can therefore provide real insight into setting up in China during a challenging period with a tourism-focused tech offering. I started out by asking John what the catalyst was for Magic Memories entering China. Well, first and foremost, thank you for the opportunity to, to share our story. We're still very early in our China journey, to be fair. So we always had a strategy as a business to go to the markets that we knew the law and we could, uh, as a New Zealand-led um, company um, from the start, that we could actually easily communicate with and grow. And that was um, Australia, UK, some of Europe, and then mainly into the US. And we thought that was right because we understood those key things that allowed us to grow with the less risk, um, language barriers, legal and things like that, and how people operated. We always had a strategy that said, look, when we go to China, it's a massive opportunity. It's the fastest growing um, country and region in our sector, which we call the, the industry of fun. We said the best way that we can do that is with partners in the attraction industry that we already trust and have a relationship with when that comes down to the guest experience we provide, the products we provide, the systems we provide. And we've been working closely with large companies like Merlin Entertainments and Village Roadshow and figuring out how our products and services would be accepted and how we can lead the market in those regions with them as a partner that already has a footprint and infrastructure in the region. And that's where we got to recently, I guess, in the last six to eight months, where we got the opportunity to partner one of our biggest partners into mainland China. And so we're very much on a stage of installation um, and now we're working on delivery of the products, getting the customer feedback um, and optimizing what we do um, in the different regions of China. So it was always a strategy. We had the opportunity and we followed our strategy, but we're very early in our journey, if that makes sense. I think that's very interesting because obviously with China, the market is quite unique. Uh, and there are several things that are completely different to other markets that you'd be operating in, such as the social media ecosystem. So have you come across that yet? And if so, how are you needing to adapt? Yeah, it's, it's, it, look, it's a great question. I think it's something that you need to go in eyes wide open. I mean, to be clear right at the start, we've, as a business, we've always had a strategy to surround people that have been where we want to go. And the people component in this is very important for us. So we want to make sure that we surround ourselves with people that are winners, whether that's Merlins or Village Roadshows, or whether it's actually the people that are on the ground that we bring into our team to how to help us deliver. Um, so we, we had to ensure we had a very strong technical team, uh, strong CTO, strong product management, so that we could actually solve these problems in advance. And we've worked extremely closely with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, extremely. Like it's been absolutely the most fabulous relationship in trying to figure out our way and navigate our way through getting the data that's existing in that business right, of, of what we should and shouldn't do. And then aligned to our strategy of surrounding ourselves with winners and people who've been where we want to go, that's how Jason's sitting here. 
So Jason's already been with Village Roadshow. He's managed and grown and built and project managed theme parks and technical solutions and delivered mass scale projects much bigger than ours in mainland China. Getting that understanding and building the right pieces of the puzzle and the key people have been a been a core piece of the jigsaw, if that is answers it specifically enough. Yeah. And as John said, having the opportunity to to really expand it, our footprint and gain a big toehold in the China market through a trusted international partner is um has been fantastic. In terms of the, the technology, I think the speed at which that we were asked to roll out was one of the things that um, it gave us an unbelievable advantage. We just we were asked to go incredibly quickly. So uh, we started working on the program in it was late September last year, and we were up and running on our first site inside China just before Christmas. So we were exploded out of the gates. We put together a product and a service that we believed would um, meet the needs of our partner and, and meet the needs of their guests. And, and then, as John said, we're starting to adapt that offering um, as we start to get some live feedback, if you like, as to what's appreciated by the end customer um, and what's what adds value to our partners. Um, so we got there with a variation of what you would probably call our existing program, our existing products, and then we're adding the layers to that and refining them, as John says. Um, so one of the aspects of the magic service for our partners is to be able to generate the memories of their guests and then to have those guests share them on social media immediately. And we can do that for most of the standard uh, social media platforms. Doing that for China is, um, is a different thing, um, not only because the platform itself uh, operates differently, but Chinese guests use social media in a completely different way than, say, we would use Facebook or Instagram um, back here in Australia or New Zealand. So, and when you say that Chinese consumers use social media in a completely different way, how do they use it? It's basically social media in China is an extension um, for, for the Chinese consumer. It's an extension of their everyday life in real time. When I say that in five, six years ago in Australia, we will, as an example, if I'm out with my family, we have a great day, we'll take some photos of each other, we'll get back home at night and then we'll update our Facebook account so we can tell all of our friends and family around the world just exactly what we did today. Now, for a Chinese consumer, that happens in real time. So when they sit down to eat lunch, they've taken a photo of their lunch and their friends and it hits their WeChat moments before they've actually taken a bite. So it's being able to... Uh, adapt, um, you know, what we do from a memories perspective, capturing that moment of togetherness and generating that memory in a market like China, our, our product and our platform has to respond to that behaviour. And I guess that's the process that we're now going through in that mini-app development. So in addition to people wanting things now, um, have you found a different dynamic in terms of the visitor that will be visiting, in terms of the family dynamic, the family makeup, the multi-generational element? What types of aspects might be different for China? Uh, you're at, you hit the nail on the head. The, the multi-generational impact, um, you know, in Australia, typically in, a, in an attractions environment, um, you would find it's a two-generation visit. So you've got parents with kids, you might have grandparents with grandchildren, it's unusual that you'll see those three generations engaging in an attractions visit where that's more the case. It changes around some of the attractions that we that we provide our service in. So a, a Madame Tussauds, for example, that's very much a, a couples and small young persons in inverted commas group. Um, whereas if you look at a Lego Discovery Centre or a Sea Life visitor group, and each of those groups consume photography as a product um, and as an experience, they consume that differently. So multi-generational 
groups, they're far more likely to buy a printed product, as an example, whereas the younger groups, um, the singles and the couples, they're very interested in the digital product, but not only just a digital product, they want digital product with enhancements. So part of our challenge now is to go through and be able to provide um, that breadth of service across all of those different component groups and be able to tailor our service in each of the different attractions so that we're making the most of the opportunities. Just quickly, I think we're seeing a massive shift in it. I think everyone's seeing it where quality of product and the variety of the products that we create that celebrate togetherness effectively, like Jason said, but also the speed that they can get access to that and a direct-to-mobile solution, which is a totally a, a technology-slash-platform-type play. We've had to design that across every single market. So as we then come into the mainland China environment, that produced some challenges for us that we had to overcome, as well as understanding that, that actually, as Jason said, the real-time behaviour mostly driven, I think around 95% of people use WeChat. Many people use other platforms as well. But that was the one that we leaned towards most quickly to ensure that we got the adoption of mainland China particularly. And Jason was spot on in the sense that we actually didn't have time to get it wrong. Um, <laughs> and that meant that we had to set up a wholly owned foreign entity very quickly because we had to have entities to create supply relationships, all within this very condensed time frame, and then we had to have a technology platform that delivered something of quality and value in the way that cons- the Chinese consumer wanted to um, adopt it and use it very, very quickly as well. So we're very lucky, I think, and fortunate the team of people we had around us and the advice that we got through other companies, NZTNE, any other entity. Village Roadshow, Merlin, et cetera, that we had to learn from quickly to be able to get that up and running within sort of 90 days was quite sensational. And in terms of regulatory approvals, you often hear that that's very difficult in China. Do you think that given that you were partnering with such globally recognisable brands, was that something that assisted or was it a mixture of having people on the ground and the right service providers and legal advice, et cetera, that helped you deal with the regulatory side? I'll I'll let Jason speak with it in detail, but I think much more the secondary. Um, It was around the the service partners that we used. It was the information uh, that we got uh, through places like NZT&E and then the relationships that Jason already had with providers, uh, installers, suppliers that already had those. Again, it comes back to those key relationships in the market that we were able to hang off until we had our own legal entity in the market. Do you want to add some layers to that, Jason? Absolutely, John. I think, you know, in terms of our own supply chain, a lot of the supply chain for our uh, our hardware is already based in China. So being able to complete an equipment order and ship it um, essentially in market is meant that we were able to respond incredibly quickly um, to be able to have equipment on the ground because obviously we need to be able to take photos. Um, We had the solid relationship with Merlin meant that we were able to transact very, very quickly. I don't think there was any compliance issues, that real regulatory issues at all that we put at risk through the process from, from the way. I mean, we were pretty careful about that, weren't we? No, absolutely. We realised that, um, that there are companies that, that will adopt a different approach, but we wanted to make certain that, we, you know, and reputation in this business is everything. So we couldn't afford to risk falling foul of local regulators. We can't afford to put the relationship with our partner at risk. You know, and we're bringing people to the table to help us achieve this foothold for China that um, that we've all worked for, for many years and we don't want to put that trust at risk either. So 
we want to make absolutely certain that we're that we're ticking every regulatory box uh, well and truly in advance of when we needed to. Now, I mean, this really does bring us on to COVID, and I guess a lot of people would be thinking that your timing for this is pretty interesting because with the onset of COVID last year and the way things have developed in tourist markets around the world, what was behind your decision to go into China now and what has been the impact of COVID on your business? Yeah, beautiful. And it, looking from the outside in is always different, isn't it? But it was perfect timing for us because we have spent the last two years realizing the value of digital content. How can we make people look better than they can themselves and get it direct to mobile? And we were very successful in building that platform and capability pre-COVID. So when COVID happened, absolutely, all of our revenues around the world, and it's now 225 attractions across 16 countries. So what happened to us was all that dried up. So luckily, because we had, we were proving this direct to mobile engagement model that we could value and monetize in a different way in the industry, our shareholders investors backed us. We were able to raise the capital to make sure we paid all of our partnerships, make sure we paid all of our supplies and had plenty left for opportunities and to be able to continue to develop our business. Now, a lot of that part of the business is actually taking people um, that used to be a core proponent of our offer and replacing them with technology. So large digital screens like a huge cell phone instead of a person to be able to create content. So interestingly enough, that now starts to give you a contactless environment, direct to digital and, and now, so half of our attractions or more than half of our attractions that we've put through mainland China are actually fully automated, meaning once they're on site, they become part of the ticket value offer and part of the actual experience where you experience the content without any people and you're having a completely digital immersive experience. So timing was actually very good and it allowed us because we had the solution to be able to deploy something during those times when contactless volume controls all those sorts of things and restrictions and into these attractions um, was a high priority and that allowed us to I think be the chosen partner and get the um, chance to be able to partner with Merlin in this new region. So it was actually fortunate rather than, whilst it was like a year of two halves where it was like, Shivers, how do we sort ourselves out to make sure we've got a life going forward? We did that, thankfully, and then it became one of opportunity. And goodness, the things that we'd developed before COVID actually now give us the opportunity to develop and install during and post COVID in that contactless environment. Can you just talk me through an attraction and how that actually works in practice? When you talk about this contactless, people-less ticket price immersion. Sure. So as an example, the attraction partners were looking for how they now many markets had gone from having an international market to having a domestic market. So instantly the volume of capacity restrictions were put in place. And that was um, put in place because they're simply their market sizes shrunk or in the places that were experiencing higher numbers of COVID, they were actually having volume restrictions, meaning they may have only been able 25%, 30%, 50% of their pre-COVID volume allowed into their attraction. So what they were looking for was how can we create value and yield into our tickets? Right? And so because now creating memories saying, I've been here, look at me and sharing a really neat number of experiences that are very valuable to you and being able to get them as part of your ticket price was a way that our partners could even keep their ticket prices the same or increase them slightly and offer more value and yield because that package back in the day may have been $30 from a speaking like in New Zealand sense, but now that was being included in the ticket price or perhaps for $1 or $2 more. 
So now that was a direct to mobile offer. So guests would get a QR code, which was their specific token in this instance. And each person could go and activate these big six, 43 or 65 inch digital screens. And they have a UI in front of them. So now people are self-composing because they know if you can't see yourself on the screen, we all take selfies, right? You won't be in the product. So people are following the instructions on a screen, having fun because we can put different assets over the screen and creating content. And then our job is to take those photos away. And in the cloud, we create digital still and video products and put them straight back into a web album where they only have to scan their, that QR code with their mobile phone now and they can get all that content that's sitting there for them, ready to share, distribute, upsell if they want or whatever. And that's the ecosystem of value that's almost like a direct-to-consumer relationship added as part of the value of the ticket price, meaning it's now a, mechan- a digital storytelling mechanism that's become part of the attractions offer. So our challenge has been how do we create better stories and better products digitally, which has been a wonderful challenge because that's the stuff we love. Yeah, that's fascinating too, because what we're hearing more and more is that, so in China, there's the rise and rise of national brands. And the way that we're hearing that our companies can add resilience is by becoming better at telling their stories. I don't know, Jason, if you've got anything to add there from your perspective. No, I think you're right over it. You know, I've seen over the last sort of five to eight years prominence, and I guess the the regard that truly international companies were were held in has changed and, and is changing. And um, And I think that's the... That's the main challenge. I think where some international companies um, have failed to grasp the opportunity that, that is China is where they've, they've believed, um, and there are many, many examples, I guess, that they believe that their product and their service um, is uh, initially superior to whatever research they might have done prior to entering China. And it's not until you actually get there and you start to see that there are a number of local alternatives that will offer uh, you know product service sets that are, that are remarkably similar and sometimes at a lower price and it's it's how you build value into your product or service that makes you successful or not in china so it's not necessarily about providing the lowest priced product in a market that is china for the consumer or, or in a b2b sense is being able to add value and create continue to create value so it's not a one-time entry strategy if you like you've got to get there knowing that you're going to have to continue to work hard to be different. Absolutely. I know um, during my conversations with Tencent, and then they'd often have two teams that they'd pit against each other to compete um, so they could really quickly innovate and adapt to the market. But just back on um, the China market and what has been happening in the tourism industry there, what we have been hearing here is that domestic tourism in China has been booming. Uh, Is that what you've seen and what has that meant for Magic Memories? It's certainly coming back very quickly. And what John described um, in terms of what happened during COVID um, has absolutely absolutely happened in, in China as it did around the rest of the world. There were uh, significant, there were lockdowns throughout China. Businesses were being closed. They were being told not to operate. But as pandemic was sort of brought under control and the government declared that things could start to open back up again, Chinese consumers have this mentality that when they're denied something for a certain amount of time, they come back for that thing even harder after the reopening. So they call it, you know, kind of revenge travel is what it's referred to in China. So we, we kind of knew that it was going to be quiet to start with. And, we, you know, over the period of, I guess, December, January, there were rolling closures and, and uh, movement restrictions in Beijing and Shanghai um, and Shenyang, where we were just literally opened a, a few weeks before. So you kind of have to ride that out. And then 
now in some of the sites we're we're back to anywhere between sixty and seventy percent of the uh, of the pre-COVID volumes, and it, it's gaining momentum. And the other thing to remember from an attractions perspective, on an industry perspective, China is a huge domestic market. So you've got Disney and Shanghai, which will say that they're doing 16 million people a year. You've got the Chimlong Group in the south that do 18, 20 million, 30 million across the, the three or four parks that they operate. But um, now when you look at those numbers and, you know, I note that your teams in all of these different markets have KPIs that they need to deliver on, what actually is the impact of that in China given the sheer volume compared to other markets? And also with regard to that, you know, how does the pricing adapt? Do you have to offer a more competitive pricing model given the volumes? And I think it's a, it's key to realise that back in the day when days was analogue, it used to be take a photo, sell a photo, which was generally we were working with 5 to 10% of the visitation to the to the attraction. Now with the new model um, we've just talked to you about, one of our key KPIs becomes participation and engagement. So now our goal is to ensure that we're offering products and services that drive engagement to as close to 100% of those people that are visiting the attraction as possible. That allows us to create a relationship with more people and add more value over a longer period of time. So our KPIs are beginning to evolve as we're seeing the opportunity that the new customer behaviour expectations bring us. And as we continue to design that technology platform across a higher participation experience and a longer customer relationship, that's where we're starting to see some real value for ourselves, but also a very strong differentiation of our offer in the marketplace, which is where the opportunity sits, not only just in China, but across all regions. So setting up in China over this period uh, and not being able to travel in, what impact has that had in terms of not being able to have boots on the ground? Well, I would say that without a doubt, the trust, again, right, we said at the start, the trust and the relationships with the people and market that Jason had built, uh, our CEO, Chris Warhurst, had built because he'd also been with Village Roadshow and experienced growth and through the uh, mainland China region. And also um, relationships that we've built over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, we've, we've been creating products in China and using the lower cost of labor um, that that enabled us to do to drive our cost base down, but also using the location of Shanghai, for example, to be able to distribute things globally, whether that's hardware, kiosks, uh, or printed products. So we did have a really nice infrastructure of relationship that we could leverage via Zoom to be able to enable boots on the ground. But what blew us away was New Zealand Trade and Enterprise actually created a boots on the ground strategy and we had people that were on their books helping Magic Memories grow, set up woofies, learn, be critical of our products and our designs and everything that we're going to launch in the market. It was unbelievable the support we got um, through that time. And because we couldn't travel, we still felt like we had, through the relationships and the people we chose um, and with NZTs, and never did we think that our delivery schedule, which was very tight, was in jeopardy. And that, that was incredible to be able to leverage those services and relationships. I'd almost go as far to say that, um, that being locked in our home countries and not being able to travel and needing to think of a different way to roll the, the business out in these different markets, I think it's enabled us to be faster. Um, where we would normally send people from the business into a new market to, to survey the market, survey a site, um, start purchasing equipment, arrange logistics, find people, all those sorts of things. 
we created it. We'd, previously, we would have had a constraint created based on how many of those people are available in our existing business, whereas they weren't available to us. So we had to use that expertise, but use it in a different way. But I think it's actually allowed Magic Memories to shift. It wasn't a pivot, it's now a shift. So we're now using that, that same, I guess, methodology, if you like, to expand rapidly through on a similar program in North America, a similar program in, uh, in Germany, um, in Austria, and, and again in the Middle East. I'm very fascinated in this too, because primarily New Zealand is a country that exports goods, but this, of course, is a service. Have you found that being a New Zealand service provider has in any way impacted on your role in the market from both a perception and a relationship point of view, but also things like a time zone perspective? Because that is actually one area that we're increasingly finding can be used to our advantage. To be clear, we have learned to dial up our New Zealanders when it's appropriate and dial it down when it's appropriate. Uh, so for an example, we were more about the infrastructure and the government support and the key relationships and our experience um, in mainland China. We wanted to dial that up to provide a surety that we could deliver this rather large challenge. Our CEO lives in Australia. Our founder lives here in New Zealand. Jason lives in Sunshine Coast. Our product manager in San Francisco. CTO's in Santa Monica. So we're, uh, we're very global footprint anyway. And the thing is that nothing really is delivered solely from New Zealand. It's now a team effort. And that's how we deliver customer service, follow the sun, technical support, follow the sun. And it's really how we use all the different people in the senior leadership team to be able to communicate and be part of this delivery project because you know we've got relationships you know Merlin is an example their head office is in the UK and we've got a strong piece of our leadership team in the UK so we have to be coordinated in how we agree to design deliver and continue to optimize this using all aspects of the world and the part where we dialed up New Zealandness I think was with NZTNE where we were able to provide government support which is very powerful and seen as something that that's a very strong string to our bow that we were able to use that and the logo and some of the key words like trade commissioner and things like that that are here supporting us into this that's that's perceived very well so we dial that up However, we don't dial it up enough that we became known as a New Zealand company. We'd rather then say we've actually got this entity and this infrastructure and uh, capability in mainland China. So that's when we start dialing up that regional expertise. And in terms of, you know, now that you are um, going into China at a rapid pace, um, what are the things that keep you awake at night? What are the, the biggest challenges that you can see going forward? Uh, the biggest challenge for us certainly is our product and experience that we've created and the technology capability and the end-to-end -end platform is new to the market. And when you have, and I think this is fair to say, the Chinese leaders in these attractions don't like to be the change agents, it appears. So there's a, there's a little bit of resistance to change, um, even though we know we're bringing them something worth ultimate value. So what we have to do is get enough scale that that change becomes the required, uh, almost the asked for product and platform experience so that then people are seen if you're not part of this, then you're being left behind. And I think the key to that, and it's very key to Chinese culture, um, is building long-term trusted relationships. And once you have that relationship, 
they may take a longer time to prove to, to be able to create that change and to be able to build that trust, authenticity and integrity between the two different parties. But when that's there, it's also very hard to break. And so we're on that journey now. I feel we're probably at the hump or over the hump. And it, it's it's been a challenge. But the thing is that what comes with the challenge is just a massive opportunity. And that's what keeps driving us. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. But we're certainly making progress. Well, John, you led me right to my last question, which was wanting to ask you about the opportunity. Obviously, the challenge is there. But what do you see as the opportunity? I won't put it in, in dollar terms because the opportunity is, is huge. Mainland China and associated Southeast Asia, we've set up in this same time frame companies in Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Japan and Thailand. And Jason already, because of our footprint with no, and we, we actually made the decision not to do any public relations, not to do any media releases, because we've got to get our act together and get ourselves into a trusted relationship before we go and tell the rest of the world. But Jason is fronting a lot of opportunity so that the word's out there that someone's doing something different and we think this could be working. So already the pipeline's starting to fill. Once we get to a stage when we've locked in the correct recipe with the correct product sets and the right model, so we've got the blueprint in place, the, the opportunity is going to be very large. No, no one region on the planet is um, investing more into the growth of the uh, industry of fun. And so it's exciting that we've dipped our toe and exciting that we're making good progress. And it's a, it's a very, very large opportunity. Many thanks to John and Jason for their insights. For more podcasts, please see our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz or follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.